Would you turn with me this evening to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9? Mark, chapter 9. We ended last week with chapter 9, verse 1. And uh, we're going to read from chapter 9, verse 2, through verse 32. And I know it's written on your outlines, verses 14 through 32. That's because that's what we're going to focus on. But I want to read the story before it, but we're not going to talk so much about it. The story before it, the first story we get to, is the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember, he's taken his disciples up to uh, Caesarea Philippi, the very north of, uh, of Israel, and it says then he, he took them up on a high mountain. Now, if you're in Israel, you know what that high mountain is. It's Mount Hermon. It's the only one uh, nearby, and it's really the only high mountain in Israel. So that's likely where they went to Mount Hermon, and uh, there Jesus was transfigured before them. It's a great story, and we're not going to cover it. And the reason is because uh, starting in January, we're going to do what I did with the Old Testament a couple of years ago and do a survey of the New Testament. And uh, it's a little kind of a little hard when you have four Gospels. You can't just really survey all the Gospels. So what we'll do is look at some important events, just some of the important events in Jesus' life, uh, and cover them in a little bit more detail. And one of those is going to be the Transfiguration. And so I want to save the thunder for, for that point. Um, but I'm going to read the story anyway. But our focus is going to be at what happens once they come down the mountain in the foothills and what they encounter there. And that's going to be the focus of the message. So let me read Exodus 9, beginning at verse 2. We'll go through verse 32. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I love Mark. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, just to stop, I'm going to stop here. I'm sorry, but I have rabbit trails. But uh, Mark, it's thought by tradition, was actually a good friend of Peter and got his information for his gospel from Peter. So when he's saying this in parentheses, he's basically giving Peter's true confessions. I, I was scared to death. I said something stupid. Sorry. So uh, he, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them. And the voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say, Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. And then now they get to the foothills, and we pick up the story that we're going to focus on this evening. When they came to the other disciples, 
They saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with him about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground and he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. We'll conclude our reading there once again. It ends with Jesus once again telling his disciples what's going to happen in the future. Let's uh, come to God in prayer before we get into this message. Father God, we thank you for your power, a power that is available for us who believe in you if we operate by faith. We pray that we might learn a little bit about power and faith this evening through the, the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In the Vatican Gallery hangs Raphael's last painting, The Transfiguration. However, this particular painting on your screen is about three sizes too small. It's as if, see, I've, I've actually got the painting here. And it's as if someone took a trash compactor and just kind of smushed it down. That's the trouble when you try to put hor uh, vertical pictures and horizontal screens. So, we're going to remedy that in just a moment. But this is a scene of the transfiguration, the story we just read. And the painting, what I wanted you to get at a little bit, is actually the painting illustrates this scene on three levels. So let's look at the three levels. At the top, we see the transfigured form of Jesus along with Moses and Elijah. On the level below that, uh, laying on the top of the mountain, we find Peter, James, and John, 
shielding their eyes from the transfigured glory of Jesus. But I want to pay particular attention this evening to the lowest level, where we find the poor, demon-possessed boy writhing in agonies to the far, far right with his father in green there. His father is by his side, along with the disciples, and some of them are pointing up to Jesus, the boy's only hope. So Raphael caught the, the strange contrast between the mountaintop glory and the troubled world awaiting the disciples below. And that's what I want to look at with you for a few moments this, this evening. So it's the next day. And the disciples excitedly, the three disciples excitedly descend the mountain. They had seen Jesus' glory. And they had heard the Father's voice. Not to mention Elijah and Moses. Now they're engaged in theological discussion about Elijah and resurrection, which they don't quite get. But suddenly, they're back in the valley encountering a demon-possessed boy. So relatively quickly, they've gone from the heights of God's glory to the depths of Satan's hideous work among people. From power to helplessness. Meanwhile, down below, the other nine apostles were being heckled and taunted by the teachers of the law apparently because their attempted exorcism failed. One can see them being derided for their powerlessness. And, and perhaps the teachers of the law were also uh, blaspheming Jesus as well, saying something like, well, you're phonies and so's your master. When Jesus approached and asked what's going on, only the father of the boy replied, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So the upshot is, Jesus' disciples couldn't drive out the demon. Jesus responds, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? You can hear the pain in Jesus' words. The word for O here, which unfortunately is not translated in some uh, translations, is a word that's rarely used when talking with other people. And it's only as a result of deep emotion. Usually it's more like the, the word woe, like woe is me. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus says. Now, Jesus had often described the religious leaders with those words, unbelieving generation, but now he appears to be directing them at his own disciples. They had earlier been commissioned to preach and also to drive out demons. But now they failed. They had been successful. There is a track record they have of driving out demons, but now they're powerless. Their failure was not for lack of trying, Jesus says, but because of unbelief. They believed in the process. They probably believed in themselves because they had done it earlier. But they were not resting their faith in Jesus. And these are fitting words for the church as well. We've 
We've been well equipped with resources and spiritual gifts and instruction, but so often we're powerless. Do we ever feel powerless in doing Christ's ministry? Would Jesus call us an unbelieving generation? Well, we know the problem. What's the solution? Jesus first addresses the Father and then the disciples. The Father brings the boy to him, sharing about his past and saying, if you can do anything, we'd sure appreciate it. And notice Jesus' response, if you can, if you can. Now, the man undoubtedly believed that Jesus could heal. That was the reason he brought the boy in the first place. But apparently his faith was shaken by the disciples' failure leading to doubts. And so Jesus responds, if I can is not the issue, but whether you believe. Everything is possible for him who believes. Well, Jesus, as he often does with miracles, challenges the man to faith. And with this faith challenge, Jesus also holds out the possibilities I remember, and some of you may as well, an old MasterCard commercial campaign years ago, which the, uh, the viewer would see on the TV screen all of these different things that they could, could buy, they could use their credit card for. And then they're challenged to master the possibilities. No wonder we have so much debt in this country. Master the possibilities. Well, Jesus is saying that to the Father. Master the possibilities. And one possibility sprang quickly to the man's mind, and that was complete healing for his son. But Jesus adds something to that. He says you can only master the possibilities by faith. By faith. Kind of like with... uh, MasterCard's commercial campaign, they wanted to believe that you could only buy those things. You could only master the possibilities if you swiped their card. So Jesus is saying you can only master the possibilities that he offers if you use your faith, swipe your faith. Without the exercise of his faith, the man could forget about the possibilities. Now this can lead... This verse and others like it can lead to misunderstanding or abuse when we start talking about power and faith. Some people suggest that all your wishes will come true if you only have enough faith, which kind of makes God like the genie in Aladdin. You just have to rub the lamp and and ask him for it, and he has to give it to you because of the strength of your faith. Well, That comes from a man-made, man-centered religion. Power has nothing to do with the strength of our faith, but rather with the strength of our God. Power has nothing to do with the strength of our faith, but with the strength of our God. Alistair Bigg tells the, the following story. He says, we have a pond in our neighborhood. A couple of Christmases ago, I walked past it with a friend. Maybe I'll go skate on that pond, he said. I don't think you should, I replied. Oh, I'm sure it'll be fine, he argued. I don't care how sure you are. I said, you weigh 170 pounds, and the pond is frozen only to three-eighths of an inch. Cannot possibly support you. 
You'd be crazy to put your weight on it. He decided not to go skating. My friend had faith in the ice, but his faith would not have saved him. In fact, his faith could have drowned him. Why? Because the object of his faith could not support him. If the ice had been thicker, my response would have been different. If the pond was frozen to the depth of three feet, then he and I could have both gone skating. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It is the foundation of faith that counts. We have to remember that. It's not about our, the strength of our faith or the weakness of our faith, but about the strength of our God and, and of his grace. Another thing about faith and power, we also have to realize that faith can never go beyond God's promises. Faith can never go beyond God's clear promises. For example, a parent longs for the recovery of an ill child, saying, I believe Jesus will heal him. And uh, I'm going to pray in faith, and God will have to heal him. He'll answer with a healing. And in a sense, that almost sounds kind of Christian, a bold Christian saying, yeah, I'm just going to pray with faith, and God's going to do it. But it's slightly wrong. It goes against God's word, goes beyond God's word. Yes, Christ can heal, but he has not promised that he will heal in every situation. Or maybe sometimes the healing will take a different form than we expect. However, that's usually not our problem. Usually our problem is the reverse. Many times we don't believe God can do anything. We see souls that we feel like are beyond our reach. We just give up on them. We see illnesses that we feel are beyond healing. We just give up on them. And in this we sin by limiting the possibilities of God's power. There is no limit to God's power and what he can do. There is a limit, however, to our faith. And this father then comes up with one of the great responses of all time to Jesus. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Here's an honest man. An honest man who, whose faith was trembling and imperfect, but real. He publicly declared his faith, but at the same time admitted its weaknesses and pleaded for help. That's true faith. Can we do that? As Christians, I feel like sometimes we think we have to have it all together. Let me let you in on a little secret. There's not a single person here today that has it all together, certainly in their faith life. But we hide the weaknesses, we put on the pious front, and then privately despair of our lack of faith. We all have faith struggles. We all need help overcoming unbelief. Can we be honest with others, with ourselves, with God? Well, the disciples, in witnessing Jesus' miracle now, casting out the demon, asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus, I think a little tongue-in-cheek, replies, this is a special kind of demon that comes out only by prayer. Well, they all come out by prayer. They all come out by dependence on God's power. And the, but the disciples had been driving out demons. God, Jesus had given them that ability. And they had apparently gotten used to it. 
as if it were some special talent that they'd been given. They perhaps deceived themselves into thinking that this ability was under their control to be exercised at will. They never thought to pray. They had forgotten that it was God's power. God's power. Jesus was teaching them that faith which brings power is a faith that prays, that asks God to use them, that taps into his power. There's a story I've probably told here before. A customer came into a hardware store where he bought a chainsaw guaranteed to cut 10 cords of firewood a day. The next day he returned looking exhausted. Something must be wrong with my saw. I worked as hard as I could and I could only cut three cords of firewood. I used to cut four with my old-fashioned saw. The salesman took it back out to a wood pile to test it. And as he pulled the cord and the motor went vroom, the customer said, what's that noise? He'd been trying to saw without the power on. Jesus is telling his disciples that they were operating without the power on. That power comes only through dependence on God. And we tap into his power through prayer. Do we work too often in our own power? Do we think our gifts, our wisdom, our talents will get us by? Do we fail to turn on the power of God through prayer? Are we allowing his power to flow through us? Raphael's three-tiered transfiguration painting gives a great exposition of this event. The disciples with hands upraised toward Christ remind us that the power comes from him alone. Power on earth comes from a praying faith in Jesus Christ. And if we're people of faith and prayer, then we can be people of power as we allow Christ's power to work through us. So what are we going to do with that promise? Tony Campolo tells the following story. It's a story that probably is true of most churches throughout the world. He says, Every Sunday, the ducks in a certain town waddle out of their houses down Main Street to their church. They waddle into the sanctuary and squat in their proper pews. The duck choir waddles in and takes its place. And then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. He reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. With wings you can fly. With wings you can mount up and soar like eagles. No walls can confine you. No fences can hold you. You have wings. God has given you wings. And you can fly like birds. And all the ducks shout, Amen! And then they all waddle back home. God's power has given us wings. Are we waddlers or flyers? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your promise of power through Jesus. Help us to not make the mistake of thinking that the power is in us alone and that we can do our own thing. Help us not to, to by prayerlessness, shut off the power supply. Help us instead to 
focus our attention on you and what your will is and open ourselves up to be a conduit of your power in interacting with people in this coming week. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing together, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. It's number 426 in Lift Up Your Hearts, number 426. We'll sing the four stanzas. The words will also be on the screen. <laughs>